Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1649. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. I'm revved up and very excited to share with you today a very special guest. He's calling in from Carmel, California, but you never know where in the world he might be. His name is Chip Connor. Chip, welcome to Cars Yeah. Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am, Mark. Let's go. All right. We'll have some fun. Well, listen, before I give a proper introduction, and most people in the car world know about you and your collecting, I want to ask you this. Chip, what's one little thing that most people don't know about you? Uh, little thing that people don't know about yeah. me. Well, those people that do know me know that uh, I, I live outside the United States. I was born in Japan and raised there. But what I think people don't know is that when I was about three years old, and this was in the 1950s, and, and remember that Tokyo was a completely devastated, completely leveled city through the Allied bombing in World War II, we were living as civilians in the middle of the city. We didn't have what they call base privileges, mm-hmm. being able to go to the PX or the BX or use uh, MPC, which was the currency that uh, the State Department and the military used. And so I was hanging out with Japanese kids. We had almonds that took care of us. And today, when we try to raise our kids, you know, given the chance in a totally immersive environment as far as other cultures were concerned. Uh, My mother was concerned that I wasn't going to learn English well enough. Mm. And so at the age of three, she bundled me on to a Boeing Stratocruiser, and uh, we went all the way across the Pacific. uh, And I ended up in Detroit at my aunt's house, where one of the tasks that my mother uh, was pursuing, in addition to having my sister, who's a couple of years younger than me, was to make sure that her two eldest sons were totally immersed in an English-speaking environment. Mm, Interesting. Well, you and I share a little something. I was actually made in Japan. Uh, my father was serving in the army, and uh, yeah, uh, in uh, in the late fifties. And uh, although I was not born there, my mom wanted to come back home. She wanted to be. She wanted to have me where her mom was, so she was allowed to get on a ship, and they sailed that navy ship across to Tacoma, which is very near where I live in Gig Harbor right now, which is kind of weird. But she said, "When I got on that ship, you stopped moving." And I went to the ship doctor every day, thinking that you died. I was so scared, and the doctor said, "Don't worry, he's fine. I think it's just the rocking of." the ship is making him feel comfortable and maybe that's why i don't get seasick to this day i don't know but yeah (laughs) kind of a crazy story well let me give you a proper introduction chip and then we're going to jump into some questions about your passion for cars william e chip connor is an avid vintage automobile enthusiast and one of the world's leading car collectors He's a longtime competitor in both modern and vintage racing and is a regular exhibitor and judge at Concorde Elegance around the world. His cars have won over 100 awards over the years, including many Best of Show awards. Chip sits on the governing Senate of the FIA and the FAA Historic Motorsport Commission, the board of the Peterson Automobile Museum, that great place, and is a co-founder of the Best of the Best Competition in association with the Peninsula Hotel Group. He's the chairman and CEO of William E. Connor and Associates Limited, one of the world's largest merchandise sourcing companies headquartered in Hong Kong with operations across Asia and Europe. We'll be back in just a minute to talk with Chip, but first a word from our very valued sponsors that make this show possible. Give them a little love, give them a little business, keep your seatbelt on. We'll be right back. 
Do you have a pet in your household that loves to go for a ride? Our pets are part of our families, but they can be very hard on your vehicle's interior. Well, Covercraft has you covered. They offer a wide variety of solutions to protect your vehicle's interiors from Fido's rough treatment. Canine cargo area covers are padded for comfort and provide door-to-door protection. Pet pads have built-in features to keep cargo areas and seats protected. Covercraft solutions cover cargo areas, bucket or bench seats, and protect from damaging claws, pet fur, hair, mud, moisture, and that occasional drool from permanently damaging your vehicle's delicate surfaces. Choose from a variety of styles and colors that cover almost every vehicle made. Is your dog getting a little old? Covercraft even has a pet ramp so your trusted companion can get himself into and out of your vehicle. Here's something special to you from me at Cars Yeah. If you go to Covercraft.com and use the code Yeah120, Y-E-A-H-120, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. Go to Covercraft.com today and use the code Yeah120 and you'll get this special 10% off. Tell Fido it's from me. That's Covercraft.com. Use Yeah120 at checkout. Covercraft, they've got you covered. American Collectors Insurance, that's how I now protect my Porsche Turbo, the one I call my orange crush. Are you insuring your classic vehicles on your regular daily driver auto policy? Then your special vehicles are at risk. Your regular auto insurance carrier won't tell you how much you'll get until after a claim, and more than likely, you'll be in for a rude awakening. With a agreed value policy from American Collectors Insurance, you'll be paid your vehicle's full agreed value. No surprises. If you're driving your collector car less than 5,000 miles a year, do what I did. Call American Collectors Insurance and get your very own agreed value policy tailored to your specific vehicle. If you're like me, you're picky about who works on your special ride. A great policy allows you to choose your repair shop of choice, and that means you'll know the job is done right. I shopped around and decided to protect my car with American Collectors Insurance. They've been protecting vehicles since 1976. Give them a call for a quote today at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love. I did at American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. All right, Chip, we are back. And I would love to start our talk with a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying that has inspiration for you. It's a nice way, I should say, to get the wheels spinning here on cars. Yeah, I know you love to drive, so Chip, take the wheel. Yeah, in terms of something inspirational or a mantra, I would have to go with something that is fairly mundane, and that would be something from Adam Smith out of The Wealth of Nations, and the quote was something to the effect that it's not because of the benevolence of the the butcher or the baker that we benefit, but from their regard for their own self-interest. And he admonished uh, us not to talk to them about our necessities, but of their advantages. And I'm, I'm a, you know, very strong believer in the power of free markets to innovate and, and create prosperity. And I think that if you look at the last 100 years, the development, uh, particularly of the automobile, the competition that free markets foster, you know, the benefits that, that have accrued to us as a society and, and the metrics of how we have evolved, I mean, everything from life expectancy to uh, the reduction in poverty, really uh, derives from an appreciation of the power of free markets. And so I would uh, attribute uh, Adam Smith as, as sort of the uh, the mantra-wielding uh, mentor for myself. 
Oh, I love it. And I love that you brought him up. You know, there's a, I've always said for a long time, nothing good happens until there's an exchange of goods or services between people. And if you go back to, you know, probably the caveman days when a guy walked over to other cave and said, hey, I've got I've got this cool stick. I'll trade you for that piece of meat. Maybe somebody sparked in their mind and went, hmm, we might be onto something here. But you mentioned something a lot more important to me, and that is the automobile and its effect in the last hundred years on society. If you think about it, not too long ago, really, when you think of the long time mankind has been here, we really were only eating foods that were probably within a certain very short distance from our house because they would spoil. There was no way to get them here quickly no refrigeration. And now, like this morning, I had blueberries from Chile. My avocados are from southern Mexico that I'll have for dinner tonight. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, how this the wheel in the automobile has brought us all together? Yeah, yeah, it, it really has. And by extension, transportation generally. I mean, the, the liberation of women, for example, the ability of both men and women to, to travel away from the village of their upbringing, the movement of uh, product, of goods, and, and also of services, given, uh, you know, the ability to fly as a lawyer or an accountant anywhere in the world, really uh, has come from the incredible innovation in transportation that was really a, a creature only of the last 100, 120 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, when was the moon landing was what, in 1970? I think that the first Wright brothers, you know, the the flyer took off, you know, 65 years before that. It's I mean, incredible. It's an amazing, yeah. amazing evolution of technology just in a very, very short period. Oh, absolutely. It's phenomenal. It makes you wonder what's going to happen in the next 100 years. Uh, you think we'll ever have those uh, Star Trek magical machines that you can just stand in a spot and it'll transport you? Wouldn't that be something? Who yeah, knows? Wouldn't that be who knows? Yeah. yeah, it'd be crazy. I'd love for you to share a little bit more first before we jump into your car collection uh, with your business so that people understand what you do, because this, what we've just talked about applies to your business. I mean, you've helped companies for many years get goods and services transported across countries, across continents, across borders, so that interchange can happen among people. So tell us a little bit about William E. Connor and Associates. Right. Well, our business, um, you know, it sort of broadly stated is about global sourcing. And by global sourcing, I don't mean that we go out and find a factory in some developing country, produce product, and then sell it to a buyer in the in the developed world. Rather, what we do is manage the supply chain. We don't produce and sell. What we do on behalf of brands and retailers around the world, mostly in the United States, but also in Europe uh, and Australia, is that we identify a factory that can produce, that has a technical capability of producing a product. And we make sure that that factory complies with social standards, with labor standards, factory safety, uh, security. Uh, there's the CTPAT program with U.S. Customs that we're very involved with. And increasingly over the last oh, I'm guessing 10 or 15 years, uh, sustainability. And what we do, again, we don't take a position in the merchandise. We're not selling it. We're providing a service. But it is a global service. And we have, you know, 1,500 people, technicians, executives around the world that are the boots on the ground in the factories actually ensuring that everything is done in a in a compliant uh, 
a compliant way. Ah, I see. Well, very important. I know when I, the company I used to work for, we started importing goods from Europe and we would go visit those factories. And this was back when it was more of a cottage industry. So you'd find a family who'd been making screwdrivers for a hundred years in Germany. And then everything moved to Asia and that became a whole nother thing. And we worked with some companies that helped us. So we were making sure we weren't sourcing goods that were made by child labor, let's say, or in factories where things were not as they should be, or were you even getting what you thought you were going to be getting? We learned some of those lessons the hard way. Let's dive into cars, though, because we are cars, yeah, here today, and you have one of the most amazing car collections. You've been so active in the car industry, and we're going to jump into kind of going back into history, but first and foremost, uh, talk a little bit about this car collection that you have and, and really what it means to you and why you've involved yourself in the car hobby, because you've had cars on the lawns all over the place. You've been involved with being uh, judging panels and involved with cars. Um, it's been a big part of your life, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a tremendous part of my life. And, and it's something from which I had derived incredible enjoyment. And it's very difficult, you know, to put your finger on why exactly it is that one becomes so animated by this. The process, for me anyway, was pretty evolutionary. I mean, I didn't, you know, start out with... Uh, you know, with cars of great importance on the lawn at Pebble Beach. I started out with, in Japan, with 50cc motorcycles. Japan in the 1950s uh, was ascendant. It uh, didn't have a Marshall Plan equivalent to move it along, but, but the stuff that they were producing with wheels tended to be small displacement, very sophisticated, and this is what, uh, what, what interested me at the time. When, when I was 11 or 12 years old for 5,000 yen, which is about $15, I guess, at the exchange rate at the time. I had a Yamaguchi motorcycle. And so all the way through the late 50s and into the 60s, it was really these small displacement, almost jewel-like creations that the Japanese had, which kept me going. In Japan, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, there were two classifications of license. One is for keiji dosha or uh, small displacement cars, 360cc or less. You could get that license at the age of 16. And the second driver's license, which is the main driver's license one could obtain in Japan. You had to be 18 years old. You had to take a test that is very rigorous, which meant that you had to go to driving school, even if you knew how to drive before that. And so what I did when I was 16, I got sent to the U.S. to work on a farm in Ohio. So I got a U.S. driver's license, and I was able, when I went back before the end of high school, to convert that oh. into a Japanese driver's license. So I got to avoid the, the difficulty of the Japanese uh, driving tests and the ignominy of Perfect. possibly flunking it. Yeah. And so I had my license. And, and so here, you know, I come to the United States. I've, I've had, I, I just love the motorcycles. I love the cars, particularly small displacement cars. And for the first time, uh, I'm faced with the prospect of getting something truly meaningful in the way of, of a car. And so I got, I started thinking about the types of cars that I would like to have and thinking about Japanese technology, overhead cams, smaller displacement. I thought that the Pontiac Firebird Sprint, which I think was probably the only overhead cam engine made in the United States for, for public consumption at the time, was really the car for me. It, mm -hmm. it spoke to European sophistication and all of that. Uh, in hindsight, the car was a bit of a dud. What I should have done is get a, a, a 
Camaro with a 327 small block in it probably would have gotten better gas mileage and give me infinitely more torque. But at least my thinking, I, you know, incorrect though the choices might have been, my thinking was, was kind of along the line of, you know, sophistication and look at something that is a little bit different. And I, I still have that Firebird to this day. Do you? So oh my I, gosh. I, That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Well, it's, uh, you know, and it's funny because for you listeners out there that may not know Chip that well, uh, we're talking about a Pontiac Firebird Sprint. Well, we're going to get into this talk a little more about the cars he has. Your eyebrows are going to go up because he's got some really, really nice things. So you were on a track here of how this evolution happened for you of getting into collector cars. So keep rolling. Yeah. So, so you know, I really couldn't afford much when I was in college. A friend of mine who was a military officer who had returned from Germany gave me a ride in a 911. And it was an early 911, 66 or 67, I think. And I just didn't understand the car. I, I could understand the sophistication of it. And he was just, of course, totally over the top about this car. I just didn't understand, you know, what is it about this small thing with a raspy engine that animates this guy so much? So I got my undergraduate degree. I went on to law school. And in, I think it was 1973, a friend of mine let me drive his 911T, a 71 911T, carbureted. And from that moment, I totally understood, <laughs> you, <got it. laughs> you know, what Porsches were all about. I mean, the, the agility of this car, the braking, the balance, the steering, I call it the squirt factor. You know, you just hit that <laughs> throttle and you zip yourself from yeah. one place to another. I mean, it was a completely different driving experience. And, and that was the genesis of an abiding fascination and love for Porsches, but not to the exclusion of other cars. You know, you talk about strange bedfellows about the same time. I became very, very interested in Bentley Continentals made between, well, certainly starting with the R-Type in 1953 through to the S3s, but really the R-Type and the S1s. These were coach-built, you know, aluminum owner-driver cars that contained an element of craftsmanship and beauty that were really unparalleled at the time, in my view. So on one hand, here I have grown to love Porsches tremendously, something that has endured. And at the same time, you know, these two-ton beasts, wonderfully crafted, were also of interest to me. And you can fast forward 40 years, and I am just as in love with the Porsches and the Bentleys today as I was then, and I still have both. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to go to those old, very large, heavy cars, but they're absolutely spectacular and to a little Porsche. But I get it. I've been a Porsche Mark fanatic forever since I was a little boy. So I understand the Porsche mystique. The early 911s, of course, once they got into the 69, 70, 71, uh, the hoods got a little longer, the cars got a little longer, and the engines got better. Yeah, I think they dialed it in. Those early ones are kind of like a 356 almost-esque car in many ways. They were just trying to figure it out. Chip, I always ask my guests to share a big challenge or even a big failure they face in their life. And if you want to go down the car path, I think this could be fun. You have some amazing cars, and what I thought we would do today is talk about a very challenging quest of one of the cars that you really wanted to acquire and tell us the story of how challenging that was and how you finally came out in a positive way so pick one well i mean you know i could pick a couple i've talked before about uh, about my 
1928 Blower Bentley, uh, YU-3250, which was the first Bentley, the first Blower Bentley ever made. It was a, it was a departure for Bentley and the W.O. Bentley conceded to Tim Birkin's desire to build a supercharged version of the four and a half. Fantastically charismatic. It is not a car that at first glance people understand. It's not intrinsically beautiful, but there were four team cars made, and this was the first. I had a very good friend back then by the name of Steady Barker, who was an automotive journalist, wonderful man who himself knew W.O. Bentley. And he said, Chip, if you want to come with me to the Isle of Man, I have a very good friend by the name of George Daniels. And George Daniels is famous, really, for his watchmaking skills. The guy was a true horological genius, but he could also do anything with cars and was as passionate about cars as he was with watches. And so we flew to the Isle of Man on Manx Airways out of London. George picked us up in his Bentley Continental. We drove to his workshops stopping at the the ferry bridge where you have to kind of pay your respects to the ferries so they don't (laughs) visit you with bad luck. Yes. Uh, So I got an education first in watches and then on the Bentley and it was drizzling and we went for a ride in this, in this blower team car. And I was just absolutely in heaven. I couldn't believe that I had this experience, you know, across the Irish sea and mist. It was cold uh, I was with a man who was 50 years older than me and whom I considered such a close friend. And then it ended. I, we went back to the UK and, and I went on with my business and, and I wrote George a letter thanking him for allowing me to just hang out with him for an afternoon, for giving me the ride in the Bentley. Uh, the, the Bentley had achieved so much. I mean, it was never a great winner, but the blower, you know, acted as the hair. Uh, for the for the supercharged Mercedes, allowing the normally aspirated Bentleys to win Le Mans, and, and let's not forget that Bentley won Le Mans five times back in the day. Right. So this was a very very important car. I mean, this car lapped Brooklyn's at 120 miles an hour. When you drive the car, you don't understand how a human being could be brave enough to do that with no seatbelts, <laughs> hanging way out there in the open with all the stuff going on, the taps and the valves and the center throttle and the you know, bulky gear bug. I mean, how in the world do these people ever do it? Anyways, you know, it's an appreciation that you acquire over time. And and I liken it to a single malt scotch. The first time you sip it, you don't understand <laughs> what all the excitement it's about. Yeah. But then you go. So I write, wrote George a letter saying, you know, embellishing my credentials as an appreciator of these things. And, and would he ever consider selling the car? I would be a great custodian, blah, blah, blah. And I heard from Steady. He called me up about uh, six months later. He says, why don't you give George a call? He may have something to talk to you about that you would be interested in. So I spoke with George. George said that he would sell the car to me. And here's the price. And, you know, I just said, done. Yeah. (laughs) You know, whatever it would take. Because this is one of those, and and it's one of the things that I believe in life. If, If it doesn't change your life, you know, in ways that are detrimental either to your family or to your friends or to your business, and you can marshal the funds to do it, then seize that opportunity. And yes. that's what I did. And this goes back, oh my goodness, about 25 years. And I am so, I don't know how I would replicate that experience today. If I wanted to go out and buy a Birkin team car, where would I go? I know. You know Ralph Lauren's not going to sell me his and neither is Bentley. Probably so, not. You know, yeah, uh, probably not. Well, my gosh, I mean, it, it was meant to be, you know, sometimes cars find you and it seems like that's what happened in this case. And I'm, I'm so thrilled that 
you are still the caretaker of that amazing car. And you must, every time you get in to drive it, do you think back to that first ride? Um, I'm always conscious of that initial experience. Yeah. And, I, and I do think back to that. I drive the car better than I did when I first got it because, you know, it's something you kind of work your way into. I can get that thing, you know, moving pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm just warmed by the idea, even when I'm not in the car, when I think about Steady, I think about George. It's just The memories are just so wonderful and so fortuitous. I mean, none of this was scripted. You know, it just right. kind of happened. And right. So I'm so blessed that it happened to me that way. Like I say, the car found you, Chip. The car found you. Oh, <laughs> marvelous story. Well, let's take a short break and thank our sponsors. We come back. I want to dive back into your younger age, this passion you've acquired about cars and how it's grown your life so and enriched your life in many ways. So sit tight. Keep the seatbelts on. Uh, we're going to go for another ride, I think, in that Bentley and maybe some other cool cars in just a minute. We'll be right back. Let's take a pit stop from the conversation and talk about my charity of choice here at Cars Yeah, America's Automotive Trust. America's Automotive Trust is a group of like-minded nonprofits working together to preserve and promote car culture across the country. Together, they provide scholarships and grants to aspiring technicians and restoration artists. They provide youth education programs and bring communities together through auto-related events, car shows, and drives. One of those nonprofits is very near and dear to my heart because it's right down the road from the Cars Yeah headquarters. It's the LeMay America's Car Museum in Tacoma, Washington. One of the world's truly great automobile collections and one of those must-see bucket list destinations for car people like you and me. If you haven't seen it, I hope you make a trip soon. And if you have seen it, it's probably time to visit again. To learn more about this fantastic museum, go to www.americascarmuseum.org. And while you're there, you can donate to help them keep their engines running. That's www.americascarmuseum.org. My favorite collector car magazine is Keith Martin's Sports Car Market. I've been a subscriber for decades. Sports Car Market is the Wall Street Journal for enthusiasts and collectors. It's your monthly must-read, whether you dream of owning a collector car, maybe you have two, or maybe you've got 200. Sports Car Market has been around for 31 years, and it's filled with valuable articles, intelligent write-ups, and the latest auction sales. Go to sportscarmarket.com and subscribe today. Here's a couple deals I have for you just for listening here on Cars Yeah. If you use the checkout code Yeah, you'll receive a 50% discount on your digital subscription at Sports Car Market, that's an exclusive offer from Cars Yeah. And guess what? Here's another deal. If you'd like to get the actual magazine, use the code BSH for buy, sell, hold. That's code BSH. And you'll get $10 off your annual print subscription. That's right. $10 off. Both of these are exclusive offers here at Cars Yeah for Sports Car Market magazine. Just go to sportscarmarket.com and get your deals today. So, what do you do after running a race team for 27 years with over 100 podiums, multiple Daytona wins, and a win at Le Mans? Well, if you're a racer and the Racers Group team owner, Kevin Buckler, you start Adobe Road Winery. It's located in Petaluma, California, and he and his team have created a winning combination with the Racing Series, four ultra-premium red wine blends that are in a class of their own. Like racing, these wines comprise of art, precision, engineering, science, 
wrapped in a whole lot of fun. You can choose from four blends titled Redline, Apex, Shift, and the 24. Today, I'm going to talk about Shift. This wine was awarded 93 points by Robert Parker's Wine Advocate. It's balanced and spicy with dark blueberries and a cigar aroma. The unique bottle shape features a vintage-inspired metal gated shift back with carbon fiber, and the cork is topped with a five-speed shift knob. That's right. There's going to be some battles at the dinner table on who gets to keep the cork after this bottle has been enjoyed. The Racing Series is a delicious gift for the automotive enthusiast in your life. And I've got a deal for you. If you use the code CARSYEAH, all one word in caps, at checkout, you get $10 off any purchase of the wines from the Racing Series. Your wine ships promptly and arrives quickly right at your door. Use the code CARSYEAH at checkout and get $10 off your purchase from the Racing Series today. There's always a seat at the table for excellence with the Racing Series. Go to adoberoadwines.com and use the code CARSYEAH today. Cheers! All right, Chip, we're back, and I would love for you to share a story that instigated your personal passion for cars. Now, you talked about that Pontiac. You talked about a very young uh, Chip Connor riding motorcycles in Japan. But was there one pivotal moment when you think back in your life that you realized, you know what, I am a car guy? I can't think, to be honest, Mark, that, that there was ever a moment when I thought, gee, I'm a car. Because, first of all, I just assumed growing up that everybody on the planet shared my passion. I mean, how could it be that, that, that a human being could not be equally as interested as I in all the stuff, you know, automotive? So I, I knew that I had the bug, but I think that there was a there was a seminal moment when the quality of my appreciation, the quality of collecting became more nuanced. Um, the Bentley is probably an example of that, where if when I was in high school or college, I had been shown the car, I really would not have appreciated it. But the more I delved into it, the more mistakes I made, and, and, and I have made some phenomenal mistakes in collecting cars over the years, thankfully learned from them. I've been so lucky to have friends who are so knowledgeable over the years that I have learned from. So really the inflection point was probably more the move away from the obviously charismatic cars, you know, the, the muscle cars of the, of the 60s and into the 70s and the Ferraris, into the cars like, oh, the Bugatti Grand Prix cars of the 1920s, which were unbeatable. They, were, they won everything. The Bentley, uh, HC Alphas, cars that were not even on my radar earlier. So that inflection point is where I would, you know, in terms of cred, you know, for lack of a better way to phrase it as a, as a, you know, sort of a, a car guy, developing an abiding passion for the more nuanced and sophisticated is kind of when I turn that corner. Well, I always ask my guests about their first special car. I think we're going to sprint forward from that Pontiac Firebird sprint. And I'd, I'll, I'll poise the question this way to you, Chip. What was your first really special collector car? The first car that you bought for your collection, you went, okay, I am starting a path here of which there's no end. I think that that car would have to be, and this goes back almost 30 years, a 1930 Alfa Romeo 1750 Zagato Grand Sport. Ooh. Uh, it was, yeah, I mean, supercharged. Here's a 1750cc car, you know, developed in the late 1920s that went like the wind. 
and it was sold, I think, at a, was it a Koi's auction? It might have been. Anyways, I had somebody bid on the car for me. I managed to get it, and, uh, and oh my goodness. I mean, this was a new level of sophistication and challenge, and, and so that car started me uh, on the road to collecting those cars that really were emblematic of the best of the period, and that includes Type 35 uh, Bugatti Grand Prix car, Type 57s, uh, HC Alphas, and that type of thing. And by the way, the process took place over many decades. It was not me going out and simply, oh, I'm going to take that and take that. It really was every car, you know, I agonized over. I thought about it. How am I going to fund this and everything else and and gradually put it all together. But again, that 1750 was probably the car that uh, that catalyzed my my interest in things that were more sophisticated and important. No doubt. What a spectacular car. All right, Chip, I'm going to be your psychiatrist today, all right? I've got you on my psychiatry couch. I'm going to climb into your skull a little bit here. If you woke up tomorrow and you were manifest as a vehicle, not what you want to be, but how you perceive your attributes as a person, uh, as a collector, as a lover of cars into a vehicle, what would Chip Connor be and why? <laughs> what a question. <laughs> um, I... Uh would love to say that beauty and charisma would somehow define the car that I would be. But sadly, the reality is that uh, performance and reliability uh, would take presence, precedence over, okay. uh, you know, you know, speed and beauty and everything else. And cars, and, and, and I've always, you know, these are cars that I've recommended to people that are kind of coming into the hobby as, as serious collectibles, but something along the lines of a 300 SL Gullwing or Roadster. They were not the fastest of their day, but the engineering that went into them, the reliability, the thought, I mean, they were serious cars. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just a poser, look at me vehicle, but rather something that was important. So again, and, and a very high performing car, not the highest, but very high. So again, I would put performance and reliability is sort of the uh, uh, the adjectives that uh, would attach to both me and, and, and to the car. I like it. You answered that very nice. But don't undersell yourself, Chip. You're a pretty handsome guy. So, you know, I think we can add a little, <laughs> we can add a little beauty in there, a uh, little sophistication. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. All right, Chip, we're up to the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions, kind of a lightning round here, and expect some very quick blips of that going or roadster throttle. So here we go. What's one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes in business and life over the years? Uh, personal habits. I mean, no, not not any one, but, but I sweat detail. I'm your classic type A warrior. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I sweat detail and I value associations. I'm very aware of my own shortcomings, which are many, and I'm just so blessed by the people in my life. So again, it's it's the small stuff. You know, big ideas abound, but if you can execute well at the lower, uh, you know, as far as details are concerned and understand that you can't do it all, you need help, that'll get you farther than almost anything else in my view. Absolutely. Great wisdom there. Now, how about if I could arrange for you to sit down and have a drink or a meal with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would it be? The list is long. Yes, I uh, bet. <laughs> but I would, uh, and I don't speak German, but I would probably pick Ferdinand Porsche because he was the complete engineer. If you think about the, the breadth of his achievements, I mean, they're, they're staggering. He made the first hybrid car in the, in the early uh, 1900s. He was the designer of the, the Silver Arrow, the auto union race car. He designed the Beetle. You know, obviously, he was maligned for uh, some of the, the the military designs that he had authorship of in World War II. 
But uh, as a designer, he was a superstar. Uh, and he gave birth to Porsche, although it was really his son, Ferry, that developed the, you know, the Porsche mark as we know it today. But its genesis came with his father, Ferdinand. And others that I'd like to meet, you know, W.O. Bentley, Enzo Ferrari, who I met once, but, you know, didn't know and never had a drink with. But, yeah. uh, but as I mentioned, the list is long. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ferdinand Porsche, nice choice. Now, when it comes to automotive advice, and I'm going to twist it this way, when it comes to automotive advice and collecting cars... What's the best advice someone else ever offered you that helped you go down perhaps a better path when it came to collecting cars? Well, I've gotten lots of advice over the years, much of it derived from mistakes that I've made. But things, for example, rarity and authenticity, I've made terrible restoration mistakes over the years, you know, going through a red and tan period. But (laughs) to approach a car from the standpoint of preservation as opposed to, uh, you know, full restoration. It, that, that wasn't, I didn't even think about that when I started collecting cars. Right. But my appreciation of cars is rooted much in the, if you go into my garage, I mean, there's so much in there that, you know, is kind of grizzled and worn, but it just is evocative of use and the years and the technology and all of that. So again, don't be hasty. Buy what you like. Uh, love it or get rid of it and be very very careful how you act as a custodian of the car Mm. you know that's so important and it's become more and more important as you see cars especially let's let's cite pebble beach because that's the the grand madame of all concours events is more and more cars that are are authentic rare and preserved used to be 15 years ago i mean preservation class i don't think it even existed people were all about really over restoration and i love this and I believe it was Peter Hageman, who's uh, local up here in the Northwest, who grill into Bentleys and, and old cars. He said it to me this way. He said, Mark, why would you over-restore a fine piece of classic vintage furniture? You wouldn't do that. Uh, a painting, you wouldn't paint over it to make it perfect again. You wouldn't ever do that. So why do that to an automobile? And I always thought of it that way. And the fact that when they're not restored we tend to enjoy them a little bit more because we're not so afraid of putting perhaps a little rock chip or a crease in the leather Mm -hmm. that's right yeah absolutely i love it now when it comes to resources and there are so many for us car people these days is there one in particular you find yourself going back to often this could be a website you visit a lot a blog anything that you tend to kind of be a go-to for you when it comes to the automotive resources arena yeah, to be honest, Mark, there isn't a single source that I go to. Uh, I'm lucky to have a library, and I'm always you know, delving into the books that have been on the shelves for a long time. I think that the availability of information you know, on the web is fantastic. I mean, Hammer Price, you know, where you get instant uh, uh, auction results if you want to keep abreast of the market. I mean, Sports Car Market, Keith's Magazine. I mean, there, there are just so many great resources out. I really would be hard put to identify one that supersedes the others. It's hard. I mean, there it just it keeps growing and growing. And uh, just when you think it's over, and of course, Hammer Price, which was uh, started by uh, Harley Cluxton, I've had both of both. I guess there's three of them now, but I've had two of them on the show. Uh, yeah, Hammer Price is another great one when it comes to that. And of course, sports car market, that's tried and true. Now, you mentioned library. Uh, like uh, you, I have a large automotive library, and I know this is tough, but is there a book maybe that you've read recently that you'd like to share that you thought was really worth sharing? 
I am a reader. I live far away from my cars, thousands of miles away. So much of my enjoyment when I'm in Hong Kong is reading about them. Uh, I, I will ask for forgiveness in advance when I suggest that things, books about cars are not necessarily great literature. Mm-hmm. So uh, not that they aren't interesting and not that they're not full of information, but the, the books that I like to read are history. I'm reading what Twilight of the Gods by Ian Toll about the last year of the Pacific War. And I'm fascinated by the settlement of, of the West uh, Empire of the uh, Summer Moon. And I guess, you know, it's because it's the only automotive book that my wife, Jackie, ever read. And that was Go Like Hell uh, <laughs> by A.J. Bahame about the uh, the Ford and Ferrari. I mean, it is a great read whether you like cars or not, yeah. you know. And uh, again, there's not a lot in the way of information for a collector that can be derived from it, but it is very, very entertaining. Yeah. And, and everybody that I've recommended the book to has enjoyed it. But most of my reading, again, if it's automotive, it's for information. It's it's just not for enjoyment. Uh, and, and the enjoyment part of it comes from, from reading about other things. Yeah. Have you read the, the book by Neil Bascom, Faster? I did read it. Yes, about uh, Dreyfus and and uh, and meeting the Germans at uh, yeah, that was a good book too. I just finished that about a month ago, uh, and and I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, it combined the history in the car, which you talked about liking history and cars. So I thought you would enjoy that. He was a guest on the show, and of course uh, A.J. Bame. He's been a guest on here twice. Also, the Arsenal of Democracy, which is another great book that he Absolutely, wrote. Absolutely, which I've read. <laughs> I've read that book as well. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. So, uh, yeah, your wife, Jackie, has a great taste. Go Like Hell. It's a great book. I'll remind our listeners that I'm going to put uh, these books on Chip's show notes page on the Cars Yow website, along with all the other 1,650-plus books that my inspiring automotive enthusiasts have listed. If you go to the website, Cars Yow, click on the Resources button. There's a page there called Guest Recommended Books, where all the books that my guests have recommended are listed for quick, easy clicks to buy. You will be blown away by the number of books listed there. All right, Chip, we're up to the checkered flag. Now, I'm really, you know, I can't wait to ask you this question because this is a tough question for most people, but for somebody like you that has some phenomenal cars in your collection, this one will be interesting. It's a bit of a doozy. I'm going to buy you a collector car today, Chip. Yeah, I'm going to add to your collection. Uh, Whatever car it is, whoever owns it, doesn't matter. I'm going to pry it out of their garage and park it in yours, but here are the rules to my game since I'm writing the check. You cannot sell it to buy a bunch of other cars with or toys or fund a business. You've got to keep it. It needs to tick all the boxes. I want you to drive it and enjoy it. No garage queens or dust collectors allowed here at Cars Yeah. But here's what makes this very challenging. It's the only one collector car you can have. So this means you can only have one car in your garage. All the others go away. Or if you have the ultimate collector car, you get to keep it. I don't have to buy you a car today, and I'll just ask you to take me for a ride in that special thing. So what is it going to be? Well, Mark, this is a question that, for me, doesn't require a great deal of thought. Okay. It's the car that I don't own, but the car would have to be the uh, the Uhlenhoek Coupe, you know, derived from the SLR that the head of the test department at Mercedes, Rudolf Uhlenhoek, built. He built two of them. Uh, it was the fastest car in the world at the time, 180 miles an hour. It is gorgeous mm. from every angle, technologically tour de force, as rare as cars get. I don't think a private collector will ever own one. Yeah. I have a model. That's about as close <laughs> as I'm ever going to get. I've got some models of the cars that <laughs> I won't get very close but if, to, but yeah. <laughs> if you could wave your magic wand and somehow make that happen to me, I would be forever in your debt. I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, that thing is, uh, yeah, 
killer. Uh, now that car resides in the Mercedes Museum, I believe. Is that That's right? right? It does. Yeah, I've yes, seen, does. I've I've seen think... that car. It is. Ooh, yeah, takes your breath away. And that museum, for anybody out there that's never been to the Mercedes Museum, I mean, put it on your bucket list. It'll blow you away. It's probably one. I've been to a lot of museums. That one takes the cake from the way you ride that that exo elevator to the top and step out and there's a horse sitting there right in front of you <laughs> kind of blows you away. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's pretty cool, uh, especially for someone like you that has some very special cars, including a GTO, uh, Ferrari and the, the Bentley you've talked about and so many special cars that there's still that other ultimate thing out there. I think that's really special. Chip, you've taken me on a fantastic ride today. I really appreciate you sharing your life and story with uh, the Cars Now listeners. Before I let you go, is there one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance you might offer when it comes to collecting cars or maybe just about life before you ride off into the sunset in that beautiful Mercedes coupe? Oh, my goodness. Well, treasure what we have. Treasure the legacy. Uh, let's, uh, let's appreciate that this is you know, a window in the in the evolution of man. Yes, it burned fossil fuels and all the other things, but it contributed a tremendous amount as well. So let's mm-hmm. embrace the past, preserve it, and, and not discard it. Absolutely. If people want to follow along with you, your business, what's the best way for them to uh, to find you? Uh, www.weconnor.com. And I think that that site also has links to some of the other companies as well. But I, I, I will I will tell you that, that there is nothing... <laughs> about my business is, is as exciting uh, or as sexy as uh, as what we enjoy with cars. <laughs> well, uh, we are all grateful for the cars you have. And you know what, Chip? Even more grateful that you share them with others by bringing them to events, uh, driving them on tours and rallies so that people can see these magnificent vehicles. So for that, I thank you, my friend. Chip, thanks for being so generous today with your time, your expertise, and sharing your life with us. This has been phenomenal. Until you and I talk again, and hopefully sooner than later, we'll see each other on a lawn once they let us out of lockdown. I'll see you down the road. Thanks, Mark. I enjoyed that. This has been fun. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah, and I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week, thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at carsyeah.com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah website at carsyeah.com. If you're listening to Cars Yeah, you've probably spent some time working on your favorite ride. But how confident are you working on your finances? You may be able to rebuild a fuel injection system, but can you decipher the details of a mutual fund? If you're like me, investments, insurance, annuities, budgeting, and other financial concepts may seem a bit daunting, but what if I told you there's a book that describes these subjects and more in an easy-to-read and a very humorous way? My friend Chris Kimball, CFP, a longtime sponsor and past guest here on Cars yeah, has written that book, and it's titled The Saga of Ike and Penny, a couple's humorous journey through the confusing world of finance. It's a fun look at things you need to know, everything from investing to effective ways to get rid of credit card debt, and it's probably the only book on finance with a VMAX on the front cover 
and a classic Mini Cooper on the back. The book's available at Amazon for just $10, and this book will dramatically improve the direction of your financial future. I gave copies to each of my children. All securities are through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Christopher Kimball Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Get your copy, The Saga of Ike and Penny, today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!